The New York Knicks teased us with a three-game win streak going into 2020, but ever since this West Coast swing, they have fell back to their losing ways. We chat with New York Knicks beat writer Mark Berman from Hollywood, California, as we talk about potential trade chips, and we also hear from one of the GOATs, Carmelo Anthony, and his return to Madison Square Garden and debate if his number should be put into the rafters. Former Knicks head coach Stu Jackson also joins the podcast. All that and more next on the very first episode of 2020 of Big Apple Buckets with the New York Post. And welcome back, welcome to the new year, and welcome to Big Apple Buckets, a New York Knicks podcast with the New York Post. I'm your host, Kazim Famiwide, a.k.a. Kaz. You can please follow me on all social media channels, at Kazim, that's K-A-Z, two E's and a M. New episodes drop every Tuesday as we dive into everything Knicks with beat writer Mark Berman and very special Knicks guest. And please, please, if you're listening to this, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Spotify, Apple. SoundCloud, wherever, Stitcher, all the good stuff. We're everywhere. But today, we chat my man Mark Berman as he joins us from L.A. as the New York Knicks take on the Los Angeles Lakers and former Knicks head coach Stu Jackson. Let's talk some hoops. Let's get it. That's going crazy. <laughs> Jake, it's good to be back. It's 2020. We were. I was this close from saying break up the Knicks. That three-game win streak to start off the year at the Nets, at the Wizards, and against Mellows returning against the Blazers. Uh, we kind of come. The Knicks have kind of come down to earth, losing two straight after that. The Knicks are now ten and twenty six on the season, six and a half games back of the Brooklyn Nets for an eight seed. And you know, I'm not gonna, you know, since I'm a guy who, who thrives on negativity, I'm not gonna revel in the fact that you know Kyrie is is not playing and they've lost uh, seven straight games and behind the Magic. I'm not gonna revel in that. Because this is a Knicks podcast, and we're all about positivity here. Sounds like you're reveling a little bit. I'm not reveling. I'm not reveling because I'm just saying that this is happening to a team in blue and orange, the back pages of this very here uh, podcast-hosted newspaper. (laughs) Mark Berman tweeted something about that, about what if this happened to the Knicks? I mean, the world would be going crazy. I saw. And, you know, he got into a little tit-for-tat with his his arch nemesis, which I saw as well. But, uh, you know, both both points were made. So I will stay positive, and I will stay uh, a a neutral middleman in that is. But in any case, the Knicks lost to the Sun Saturday, uh, lost a shootout, against the Clippers on Sunday where uh, Marcus Morris had his career highs and he, uh, the New York Knicks as a team scored 45 points in the first quarter. Uh, first time they've ever done that. No defense has played anywhere, <laughs> but it was a fun Sunday game to watch if playoff football isn't really your thing. Uh, but, man, it's been a, a wild ride under the Mike Miller era. And I got to say, despite those two losses, which could have gone either way, you know, looking at that game in Phoenix and in Los Angeles, the Knicks do look like a competent basketball team for the first time uh, since, I guess, the, the first week of the season when, when they when they almost beat the Spurs and uh, started off 1-4. Marcus Morris has, you know, become the biggest trade chip, the biggest trade domino as far as the New York Knicks is what concerned. What do get for him? Like, do you think they can get maybe even an unprotected first? Do you go you have get a to. point guard? Can you get a player out of this? You have to. You have to get a, at the very least, an unprotected first-round pick from, uh, I'm guessing, a Western Conference power. If I'm looking at a guy like uh, the Los Angeles Lakers, 
who may have soured on Kyle Kuzma recently, you know what I mean? Like, that's somewhere I look, you know? That's a guy Mar- and Marcus Morris where, you know, if I'm the Lakers, yeah, they can use a pick-and-roll point guard, but you got LeBron James. You'll be fine. Like, if if you're looking at a guy who could hit three and Ds and, you know, come in immediately, be a professional, you know, there's a lot of grown men on that team, and Kyle Kuzma may have found his way on the outs of that. I look. I give a good look at Marcus Morris. I give a good look at Kyle Kuzma and that unprotected well, first round they, pick. Well, that's the thing. I don't think they would get Kuzma and a first. If they get Kuzma, it'd probably be a second. Is my guess for a, a rental. I mean, yeah. a two month rental. And I would take that honestly. If you get Kuzma in a second round, I think that's fine. I don't, mm. I'm not sold on Kuzma yet, but I mean, at least you're getting a player and a guy who can score and come off the bench and for the Knicks probably even start. Speaking of which, speaking of a lot going on, the last time we were here, uh, the New York Knicks. Beat the Portland Trailblazers in the first game of the New York year. Uh, the New Year. The New York year. The first game of the New Year. Woo! It was a New York year. It was a New York I was there. Too. Let me tell you, that place was crowded with tourists. Yeah. 90% of that building was tourists. And I know a lot of people watching TV said, oh, it sounded loud. It sounded like Melo got a nice ovation. He got some cheers and claps, but there were so many tourists who don't really know the symbolization of what it meant of Melo returning to the Garden, that it frustrated me yeah. being a Knicks fan watching it because you just heard you heard pin drops. <laughs> you heard pin drops in the arena, and it was sold out. The announced crowd was over 19000 yeah. packed house, the cheapest ticket. Secondary market was over $200 to get in the building oh my to see two teams that aren't making the playoffs. And it was kind of frustrating, but, you know, it's New Year's Day, and tours, it was their last pit stop before they head back to Europe or wherever they're going. Facts. And, you know, it was, it was the holidays, so maybe the city was a little bit more crowded than usual, if you can imagine that. But, I mean, lo and behold, the love affair between New York City and Carmelo Anthony hasn't soured as much as people may have thought it has over the past years. I mean, he was announced to a pretty good ovation. Uh, even when he got hot in the second half of the game, uh, he, you know— it sounded like old times, and I hate to say old times to make it seem like he's older, but it sounded like he was suiting up for the blue and orange when he was hitting those those jab steps, those isos, getting those buckets, man. Like, Melo looked like Melo for a lot of yeah, that game. he dropped 26, and he looked good. And it's funny you mentioned because our buddy Greg Joyce, friend of the program, asked Melo after the game about being back to the old days. Back to the old days? So you, you aging me now. <laughs> I was just playing basketball, man. I was just... Playing basketball, you know, I think the guys who've been here have been seeing those moves for a long time, and I don't think I was doing anything special. It was just, you know, I felt good. The shot was going in, and I was just taking advantage of, you know, the, the defenders that they was putting on me, the switches and the one-on-one situations. Kaz Mello was also asked about, like you said, the love that he receives coming back to the Garden. I think I've always, you know, had the love from the city like that, but, you know, to be back in it in this building that I, where I spent so many years and, uh, you know, that, that love felt extremely good tonight. Kaz, he was also asked after the game about his time in New York. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I, I would say that for the most part, um, I've, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've grown. Uh, I think being in the city makes you uh, a, a specific type of person. Not a basketball player, a specific type of person. And uh, for me to embrace that and want that and and take that challenge on, I think that's why I got the love that I got tonight. And I will continue to get that from this city. Now, Kaz, I know you were in Jamaica on New Year's, but I know you did catch a lot of this game, and you noticed that Mitchell Robinson was a dunking machine. Oh, yeah. He was looking like uh, a young Shaq in there, just dunking everything. 
near the rim. I mean, one thing I've noticed about Mitchell Robinson lately is, like, his hands have just been incredible this past season. If you literally throw it anywhere near the rim, he's catching it and he's dunking it. And he probably had his best game of the season against uh, the Portland Trailblazers in Melo's return. Yeah, he was tied for a career-high 22, and Melo was asked after the game about Mitchell Robinson's development and how good he's becoming. You know, the way he protects the rim, the way he runs the court, uh, I, I honestly think that he's getting better and better and better. And I, I don't really think he understands how good he is or how good he can be in his ceiling, right? It's, the way that he plays uh, is it's perfect you know, for the way that the Knicks play. All right, Cass, here's where it gets really interesting. Melo was asked after the game about whether or not his number seven should be put up in the MSG rafters. Listen up. I don't know. You got to ask them. I, I, I did glance up at, at the rafters a little bit today, National Anthem. <laughs> so, you know, they, they say in life you got to envision. So I was envisioning. <laughs> See how they hang it up there. So. All right, Kaz, like, what What do you think here? Should Carmelo Anthony's number seven be retired in the MSG Raptors? So here, here's my thing with this, right? I stand on both sides of the fence, and I know I, it's not the most interesting debate to understand why both sides may have a point here. But you look up at the MSG Raptors, and it is hard to get your number up there. I mean, just the fact that Julius Randle's out there wearing number 30 should give you cause for pause and be like, all right, if we're not going to retire – Bernard King's number, it's going to be hard to get Melo's jersey retired. But at the same time, if I'm the Knicks organization and you see the type of fanfare that Carmelo Anthony has and you see the type of popularity that he has, you need that type of of uh, of attraction when it comes to New York City, man. Like, you go to Brooklyn, and I hate to keep bringing up the, the neighbors from across the bridge, but you go to Brooklyn and you look up in the rafters and you know the people up there if you were born in the 80s and 90s. You look up, you see Jason Kidd. Oh, okay, I know him. You look up and see Julius Irvin. Okay, I know him. Like, you look up and see Jay-Z. It's like, okay, I know these people. You know what I'm saying? Like, you want to be, you want to say, okay, I want to be up in those rafters one day. You know what I'm saying? When somebody goes and, and plays for the Los Angeles Lakers, not only do they want to... Uh, win a, a Larry O'Brien trophy or when they play for the Boston Celtics they want to wear a Larry O'Brien trophy they want to have their number up in the up in the rafters one day and if you look up in the rafters in the New York City in Madison Square Garden like yeah you might know Patrick you know Patrick Ewing maybe if you were born in the 80s or 90s and stuff like that but the guys that you're trying to bring on uh, don't really identify with Ewing like that don't really identify with Dave the Busher and and uh well here's and, and the Willis exact Reed. list for you number 10 Walt Frazier everyone knows him yeah Walt number Clyde. 15 Earl the Pearl Monroe and Dick McGuire everyone knows Earl I don't know if everyone knows Dick McGuire uh-huh number 19 Willis Reed everyone yep. knows again these are 70s though Dave the Busher number 22 I'd say a decent amount of people know him Bill, yeah Bill Bradley number 24 a lot of people know from politics now being a U.S. senator exactly uh number 33 as you said Patrick Ewing and then number 613 for the amount of wins he has as head coach, Red Holzman. That's it. Exactly. And that's and that's kind of my point right there, you know. Like, when you think Knicks and, you know, if I'm a, a, I'm a young star player and, you know, and it doesn't even have to be a guy who's in the league right now. It could be a guy who's in high school. It could be a guy who, who, who doesn't even realize, you know, the importance of playing in Madison Square Garden and playing for the Knicks. You look up in, that, in those Raptors and you don't readily identify with any of those guys no. up there. You go up there and you see Seven Anthony up there, you immediately identify with Melo. Even he, if, here's my argument against that. What do you identify with him? You identify a scoring machine. He had seven seasons. He averaged 24.7 a game with the Knicks. And you, you look at a guy who made the second round of the playoffs and nothing further. And that's the issue. When you look at those guys in the rafters, all went to the finals, all went to the playoffs, all won big games. 
Melo never really won a big game here, and I could understand that as a lot of people on Twitter were laughing at the fact that he was envisioning it. And I and listen, I think we all like Melo. He's a great person, tremendous with the media, was tremendous when he's here. Yeah. Very nice guy. But in terms of his longevity and winning culture in New York, I don't think he belongs up there, and I think that's a sacred group. What winning culture in New York? What, have, what well, has those anybody t- won? Seventies, they won. Eighties, they won. Nineties, they were yeah. they were winners. Not that they won titles, but they had respectable teams and playoff runs. They only had one playoff run, but, and it ended in the second round. With but Mello. you see, that's my point, though. That's my point when it comes to New York Knicks and the ways their organization is won. You go to the Grindhouse in FedEx Forum; they got Tony Allen's number retired over there. He didn't win. He didn't win Jack. He yeah. didn't win anything. But at the same time, that is a, that is a thing where it's like that guy meant so much to that franchise and that organization and in that city. Yes, nobody here will ever wear your number again. That's all it should be. It shouldn't be a a, a antiquated list. Well, he didn't win championships. He he didn't win MVP. He only went to the second round. It shouldn't be that. It's like, did you mean enough to this city and to this franchise to where if anybody ever wears number seven Anthony, they do not think of Anthony? But I don't. I think it was a very – he says about the love. I think it was when he was here it was love-hate. I think now it's more love looking back on it because the feel-good story of no one picked him up and now he's scoring and playing well with the Blazers – when he was here, a lot of people had the debate of, oh, he's a ball hog. We can never win with Melo. He doesn't distribute. So I would debate that there wasn't always love for him. It's a lot different now when you look back when a guy leaves and he's away for a while and you see him kind of do nothing with the Thunder and be left. I mean, RIP to his time in the Bulls. It yeah. lasted a total of like 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you look at the, that and say, oh, you know, it was fun. But I don't think a lot. Not there were people that didn't like him when he was here. Yeah, so. but you know, a distance makes the heart grow fonder, man. Like yeah. you, you look and say, "Well, he, he he was a ball hog and he didn't win." Well, what have you done since he's left? You know what I'm saying? Like the the glory days are now those 2010, 2012 years when they were respectable when but they went to the playoffs. I don't think that's a reason to put a guy in the rafters. It just is because the team stinks after that. It I don't is think to me. It is to me because it's like, what did you mean to this franchise? Like if you have stunk ever since I left. And if you go to the point where you can't think of New York 7 and think of any other player, if you can't, the fact that Julius Randle, and I love Julius Randle, I'm one of the few guys have, that have defended him with his ups and downs. He's been playing well. He should not be wearing number 30. He should not be wearing number 30. Bernard King's 30 should have been in the in the rafters that's a long shocking. time ago. Yeah, it's extremely shocking. shocking. Yeah. And that's my point when it comes to this franchise. Like, they're so tone deaf sometimes when it comes to players that mean that much to your franchise. You know, I'm not saying you should retire Jeremy Lin's number or anything like that. Hey, I'm, like, a, <laughs> I'm saying, like, there's you can certain put the dates. It's three weeks of, uh, like, February 2nd to March 3rd. But that, that, that's what I'm saying, though. Like, it shouldn't get to a point where it's like, well, you didn't win championships. Like, well, what have you won? You're, I'm sorry, New York. I'm sorry, uh, uh, Knicks franchise and MSG Networks. Like you are in a position to 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 dictate championships being a, a reason why a player is important to a franchise because you haven't won any championships, and it, it's not necessarily on a player or anything like that. But you have to understand, Carmelo Anthony is New York. When you think of Carmelo Anthony, a future first ballot Hall of Famer, I don't care what anybody says, one of the greatest scorers you've ever seen. By the time he's done, he's going to be a top 10 scorer in league history. When you think of his time in the NBA, you're going to think of him in a New York jersey, a Syracuse jersey, or maybe a Denver jersey. 
and he and he didn't really and you know Denver's gonna retire his fifteen. That goes without question. So if he gets reti- his number jo- retired in Denver and not New York City, that says uh, more about the franchise in New York than it does about. I think Mello. it's also tell yeah. Well, I think it tells you that the Nuggets are the major franchise and, and big city that New York is because but, they can afford to retire someone yeah, like that because it's Denver. But Denver's been a better. Run franchise well, it's, it's, you're than right. the Knicks in the past couple of decades. Well, so it's we like, agree to disagree. I, I know James Dolan's never getting his number. Of the Raptors. Yeah, we, we we'll can guarantee see about that. that. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a it's an endless argument. I'm glad we kind of have different opinions because I think Knicks fans are mixed in it. But I do think the I'm majority. I think well, I think the majority is on the side of he shouldn't. But it's it's also like tells you just how bad the franchise is. Absolutely. I'm, I mean, I'm, I even have mixed feelings about it. But at the same time, it's like, yo, if you want the future of the Knicks to be good, you have to show people like, hey, we treat our franchise players well. That's the that's the bad that's the bad juju that's been out there with the Knicks for a while. That's why they haven't attracted free agents. That's why people don't necessarily want to play there or succeed there. You have to put out the perception that, yo, if you come here and you ball out for us, championships be damned, we will treat you with respect. And that's why you're wearing a sweater today that says emotional. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I'm very emotional about this, damn it. Very emotional. Thanks for the kudos. You know, it wouldn't be an episode of Big Apple Buckets if we didn't get one of my favorite people in the world on the phone. My guy, the senior writer, longtime New York Knicks beat writer of the New York Post, Mark Berman, coming to us live from Hollywood, California. How you doing, Mark? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, Knicks have had unbelievable weather uh, for the last few days, 75 degrees, sunny. So it's been good. I mean, it would be better if they could pull out a, a big upset uh, against the Lakers, but uh, it's going to be very difficult. You know, usually usually I would be jealous of you in that West Coast weather, but it's like 50-some degrees out here. It's not too bad. I was going to say, I can imagine Mark on Venice Beach just lay, <laughs> laying there, relaxed, <laughs> soaking in a tan. <laughs> yeah. No, it's where my hotel is very close by, but no, it's, it's beautiful here. Didn't realize New York got warm. I'm a little jealous now. Yeah, it wasn't that bad. All I'm saying, Mark, is use suntan lotion. Use suntan lotion, <laughs> please, please. Yes. But anyway, uh, Kevin Knox, man, his minutes have uh, just been dwindling in the past couple of weeks as the Knicks have, even though, you know, they've lost the past two games, have looked a little bit better under Mike Miller. Um, he also revealed that he had a knee injury that kept him out a month or so this summer. Is there a chance, in your opinion, that the Knicks may start looking and listening to offers for Kevin Knox. Is it too early to say that he might be a bust? Are we are we jumping to conclusions? What are your thoughts on Kevin Knox right now and where he stands with the New York Knicks? Well, he's obviously not an untouchable. Of course, they would listen to offers, but they would really have to get a significant return. Uh, even though they're disappointed in his progress in his second season, you know, he is their ninth pick, and Scott Perry likes to talk about not judging completely until they've gone through at least three years of their four-year rookie contract. Uh, Knox might be just in a bad situation, backing up Marcus Morris, who is having a terrific season, and now Reggie Bullock is uh, back uh, in the mix and playing well, and they want to see what they got in Bullock. So that's what happened to Knox the other day in uh, Staples Center. Six minutes, didn't play in the second half. But my, you know, my story a few days ago was he's lost his mojo. I mean, he doesn't show any confidence in like getting the ball and looking to drive uh, or you know create. I know people close to him think they're not using him well enough that he should be on top, getting some pick 
pick and rolls and creating that way. But it's been a different Kevin Knox. As much as we criticized him last season, you know, he was sort of a roller coaster last season. He showed flashes of brilliance. This season, he showed nothing. What are your thoughts on Marcus Morris's thoughts of wanting to be here long term in New York City? Uh, just to be cynical for a minute, I think Marcus, you know, when he says he wants to stay, he has said he wants to stay long term. But I think he just wants to stay to get to July and get a real major contract because I think he realizes he's in the best role he's ever had in his NBA career. Essentially now, you know, the number one option, him and Julius trade off on that. Uh, with just tremendous opportunity to rack up points. And he's not just racking up points. I mean, he's helping the Knicks when they win. It's usually Morris is a big factor in it. So he's in this great role, increasing his stock. Uh, and I think he's looking this July at some major payday. If he went to, say, the Sixers, who have shown some interest, you know, he's going to probably come off the bench. You know, he'll get to the possible conference finals, but he'll be in a bench role. His statistics won't be the same. And, you know, come July 1st, maybe that contract won't be waiting for him. But, yeah, no, I think Marcus would love to – being in a scenario where the Knicks say, listen, we're going to give you this big deal in July and want you to be the centerpiece. But is Marcus that player? Uh, you know, he's definitely a late bloomer, but, you know, he hasn't showed it for more than, you know, a few months here with the Knicks. And you're always wary of, you know, statistics on a losing team. But still, it's been very impressive. And maybe he's turn the corner and become a number one option type guy. No one's ever said that about Marcus Morris before. You wrote a story uh, at the end of the year about Carl Anthony Towns being on the Knicks radar and multiple other potentially disgruntled stars being on the Knicks radar. Who do you think um, can be a potential piece uh, as far as like uh, when it comes to trade deadline talk and, and moving somebody for either a first round pick or possibly a star player for New York City? Yeah, I don't know if it's going to happen, a big blockbuster at the trade deadline where they get the star they're craving. But one of the Knicks' uh, options and one of their strategies is not just free agency, because the free agent class in 2020 is weak. We've talked about it. Anthony Davis is loving life here in Los Angeles. I can't imagine him going anywhere else, but you know, taking a long-term deal to stay here. So the Knicks are, with their cap flexibility, this summer they can make a blockbuster trade, able to take in a superstar without giving back the uh, same amount of money. There's a lot of flexibility because of their cap space. So to make a trade for a star is always tough to do unless that star wants to leave, like Kyrie Irving and Kawhi, Jimmy Butler, uh, all, and Anthony Davis, they all demanded trades. And the Knicks are looking for that future guy who's going to want out. And Carl Anthony Towns, you know, New Jersey native, grew up a Knicks fan, you know, has been losing in Minnesota for several years. I mean, that's someone that's popped on their radar screen as, you know, a, a potential disgruntled uh, guy. And, you know, listen, Minnesota could trade him anywhere. Uh, just because Town says the Knicks are my first choice doesn't mean Minnesota would do it. But the Knicks do have a lot of assets, and that's why they're trying to gain more future assets to put together a blockbuster trade. And, yeah, Carl Anthony Towns is definitely 
on their radar. All right. Now, Mark Berman, the New York Knicks take on the Los Angeles Lakers tonight. Enjoy that game. Let's try and make it. Hopefully, we'll have something great to talk about next week. But it's always good talking to you, Mark. You can follow him on Twitter at NYPost underscore Berman and read his stories in the post at NYPost.com. Mark, enjoy the game tonight. Hopefully, we get a dub. All right. Thanks so much, guys. I enjoyed it. Take care. This man I'm about to introduce, uh, Coach Nix from 1989 to 1990, he did go on to become the assistant commissioner of the Big East and was also a former executive VP for the NBA and was also a seminal figure in growing the Grizzlies franchise. Ladies and gentlemen, we got Stu Jackson joining us. The world of not just the NBA but sports in general lost a, a massive figure in uh, David Stern last week. And uh, I know you worked very closely with David Stern and, uh, you know, the the commish was one of the most uh prominent figures and not just the NBA and growing its uh, its popularity, but just sports in general, one of the most successful guys uh, that's ever come out of, of, of any league or any sport, regardless of what it is. So, Stu, I'd just love to um, get some of your thoughts on, on working with David Stern and, you know, what it meant to kind of like watch him grow the league to what it was and pretty much having a front row seat to that. Yeah, no, uh, you know, it, it was a great loss. And uh, David was a great uh, man, great leader, um, an unbelievable uh, unbelievable visionary, you know, considering the fact that when he, you know, took over the NBA in 1984, uh, you know, revenues were about $185 million. The games weren't even on, um, you know, uh, TV. They were tape delayed. And, you know, you look at to where that business is now, the NBA, in the billions of dollars, much of that credit uh, goes to David Stern. And he just had such a profound effect on the game of basketball, not only here domestically, but all across the globe. And, you know, he just, um, you can't say enough about him. I I think personally for me, you know, he was very instrumental at different junctures in my own career. And, uh, you know, I'll be forever indebted to him, uh, working alongside of him. You know, you got an opportunity to work alongside a man that probably had one of the greatest minds that I personally have ever been in contact with in terms of just, uh, you know, not only his vision, but his intellect. And, you know, he shared that with all of us who worked with him and made us all better, taught us how, uh, to dig a little bit deeper, work a little bit harder, and think a little bit clearer. And, uh, you know, that's who he was. That's what he did for all of us. And, uh, you know, I'm just grateful to have known the man. Now, uh, anybody who's who's watched David Stern work over the past uh, three to four decades always said he was tough, but he was fair, and he was very player-friendly. But, you know, I don't think you necessarily had the, the – uh, I guess the great word for it is the opportunity to be tough and fair because you had to usually hand out these punishments that might have happened <laughs> within the league. Um, can you at least share maybe a, a great anecdote or a great story about you and Stern kind of like uh, mulling through the process of just being the, the one of the head VPs of the NBA when it came to maybe a star player of some sort? Yeah, no, it was, you know, probably the most memorable uh, and, and also one of the more stressful situations that we were in I believe was in uh, you know you may recall the series between the uh, Phoenix Suns and the San Antonio Spurs where ultimately we the had hip check suspense. heard around the world <laughs> the hip check heard around the world with uh, Robert Ory and Steve Nash and uh, only to find out that uh, you know after a video review Amari Stoudemire and Boris Diaw had left uh, 
what was termed at that time the vicinity of the bench. And that was a really difficult time because, you know, uh, for you may remember, your listeners may remember, I, and, and I really felt that the Phoenix Suns at that time had the best team in basketball. And, you know, by suspending those two players, it fundamentally changed the series. And at the time that, you know, we did it, and that was my recommendation to David, uh, and David agreed, but it wasn't without a little bit of spirited debate. Um, The rule was very clear. Uh, The two players, you know, left the bench, and, you know, you couldn't make an, an exception based upon you know, former, uh, you know, precedent, uh, namely Patrick Ewing in the New York Knicks during their own playoff series. So we had to suspend him, and it was tough. It was a difficult decision. At the same time, it was a very clear decision and fundamentally changed that series. And that just wasn't a, a fun anecdote. It wasn't a fun time, and I don't think anybody felt great about it, but he always used to say, if you have a rule and you're not going to enforce it, you shouldn't have the rule. And there were valid reasons why that rule was in place. Speaking of tough positions, uh, you you used to coach the Knicks, <laughs> and uh, you know it's <laughs> it's one of those positions uh, in all of sports that uh, only a few people can truly understand. And when you look at the franchise and you look at everything that this team has been through, a lot of things uh, usually stem back to the guy at the helm. And you were with the guy at the helm at one point or another. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about what is the difference between coaching the New York Knicks franchise as opposed to any other franchise that there is in the NBA, especially given that huge spotlight that that position brings. No, it's a good question. And I think what existed back when I coached the Knicks, which was, gosh, uh, probably 30 years ago, still exists today. And the biggest difference is, you know, the media and the media market. And, you know, at the time that I coached, you had, you know, multiple uh, print newspapers, you know, multiple television stations, um, you know, all competing with each other. And the objective was for all of them to sell their shows and to sell papers. And sometimes to do that, um, each of them competed for a dis- different counterpoint on the very on the very same subjects, just because. You know, if you were a contrarian, you offer your readers or your viewers a different view. So no one was ever going to be on the same page. And inherent in that was a great deal of daily conflict for the franchise, for the players, and the way you conducted your business. So let's fast forward to this day and age where you not only have television stations, print media, but bloggers, you know, digital properties that all complicate and enhance that you know, sense of media chaos around the franchise in a city that truly is a basketball city. And the enormity of that type of scrutiny just is difficult for a coach because you have to coach and manage around it, you know, with your players and your coaches. And it's almost an impossible task. And the only way to handle it is to come up with a plan, come up with a strategy and, you know, put the blinders on and just head, straight for that your goal or objective as best you can and try to block out as much noise as you can because in this day and age it's just enormous and I can't imagine what you know a guy like Steve Mills and Scott Perry and 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 their coaching staff go through on a daily basis this city is unlike any other and the 
issues and problems take on a different magnitude than they would in, say, Utah. We all know that. But again, it makes it that much more difficult to be successful. Stu, when you were named the head coach in 1989, you were 33, the second youngest coach in NBA history. Did you feel like you weren't ready yet? Because you think about it, I mean, that's the same age Kaz right here is sitting here, uh, a little, maybe a little bit younger. Were you say, not yet? Almost. Yeah, so a couple, we're a couple there. years away. Uh, do you feel like maybe it was too early? Because you never see guys that young in today's game get hired. Yeah, you know, I was very fortunate to get hired at a very young age because I was really young and dumb. I mean, it was great. You know, I was just focused on trying to, you know, win some games and coach the team. I didn't really – I wasn't old enough or mature enough to really understand the magnitude of the position. And uh, fortunately for me, um, you know, Al Bianchi had enough faith in me to hire me at that young an age. And uh, it was an opportunity I'm, you know, forever indebted to him for uh, – you know, and rest in peace, Al Bianchi, because, you know, we lost him in the past year as well. So, you know, was I too young? Probably. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I had a job to do and I tried to do it to the best of my ability until I didn't have the job anymore. And um, uh, but it was a, a wonderful experience, uh, a great learning tool for me, not only as a coach, but just, you know, in this business of basketball and as a career and uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, looking back now, I mean, you took the Knicks to the semifinals and went up against, you know, an eventual NBA champion in the Bad Boy Pistons. That's good enough to get you, like, a $30 million deal in this NBA. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean, just uh, just take me back to that series, man. Like, you went up against a team that is a, is a legendary team in the Detroit Bad Boy Pistons, and, you know, the Knicks team fell. But uh, what, was, what was it like going up against the guys like Isaiah Thomas and Dumas and Lambeer when you had those young Knicks like Ewing and, and, and Davis and everybody. Uh, what was what was the one thing that stood out to you uh, against coaching, that, coaching against that team? No, it's a fair question. And uh, to take everybody back at the time, that was uh, uh, that series with the Detroit Pistons followed immediately after we had beaten uh, Boston in Boston, um, you know, in the fifth game of that series to win the series. And then we turned around two days later and had to travel to Detroit against the best team on the planet. It was really a tall order. We went in there, I think on an emotional high, perhaps too emotional high. Uh, we were probably a little bit fatigued mentally and physically. And then you're facing a team that my goodness, guys, you know, you're talking about Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, you know, John Sally, Bill Lambeer, Dennis Rodman, Vinny Johnson, and, you know, ha not having a lot of preparation time going into game one, I can't tell you the nightmares that I had then and still have to this day of trying to prepare, you know, to score offensively with Dennis Rodman on the floor and as good a defensive team as the Pistons were. You know, and that's the one thing that I really remember is, you know, uh, you know they were very deliberate offensively, but defensively they just locked you down uh, physically they wore on you uh, within a game game to game and eventually proved to be you know the world champions that year but it, it was very a very difficult to order coming off that you know first round series with the Boston Celtics but you know in retrospect you know even if we had extended the series a little bit longer probably could not have won it they were that good 
Now, Stu, uh, you, you've gone on to become the associate commissioner of the Big East. And, you know, without aging myself too much, I came up in the the legendary Big East era with your Ewings and your St. John's and your Georgetown's and your Yukon's. And, you know, not just, just speaking strictly as a fan, I mean, like that Big East luster maybe isn't as shiny as it was as, you know, growing up with those legendary battles with the ACC and going to the Final Four every year and all that type of stuff. Sell me. Sell me right now as the commissioner, associate commissioner of the Big East uh, why, uh, you know, the Big East now is more interesting and more intriguing than ever. No, it's, it's an interesting um, perspective that you have. And I, I think, you know, for us right now, we reconstructed the Big East, um, you know, six years ago using some of the um, or seven of the schools that uh, were formerly in the Big East. And I'm talking about the Paul Marquette, um, Georgetown, Villanova, St. John, Seton Hall, Providence, and added, um, you know, to that, um, you know, the, the seven schools, um, Creighton, Butler, and, uh, and Xavier at the form of 10 team league. And then most recently, uh, this past year, UConn will join us once again, um, in the coming year. I would say this is that, you know, in those six years, uh, in the beginning, there was a lot of doubt as to whether or not the Big East would even survive, let alone, um, you know, regain some of the, the luster that it had from years past. Well, here we are six and a half years later, and we've more than survived. Um, you know, we've had uh, two national championships. Um, you know, Villanova has given us that two of the last four years. Uh, currently, where we stand today, um, we, you know, this season specifically, uh, we've won more games percentage-wise than any conference in the country. Uh, all the metrics have us as the third best conference in the country. Uh, we'll probably, you know, send five to seven of our 10 teams this year into the NCAA tournament. Um, currently, when you look at the metrics, uh, six of our teams are in the top 50 in the country in, um, you know, our uh, the NCAA evaluation tool ranking. And all 10 of our teams are in the top 100. So uh, our strength is there. The depth and breadth of the conference is there. Um, I would encourage fans to tune into our games. They're extremely competitive. We have, you know, a new set of stars. Uh, this year we've got two National Player of the Year candidates uh, in Miles Powell at Seton Hall and Marcus Howard at Marquette University. And, you know, while the Big East, it's not, you know, Pearl Washington, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, and, you know, the miracle team of Villanova, this new version of the Big East, it's very, very good. Stu, uh, I, I could talk hoops with you all day, Mr. Jackson, if you're nasty. But uh, follow him on Twitter <laughs> at StuJackson32, uh, Associate Commissioner of the Big East, former VP of the NBA, former head coach of the Knicks, former GM and head coach of the Grizzlies franchise. Stu Jackson, great talking to you. Thanks for coming to Big Apple Buckets, my man. No, thank you for having me uh, anytime. This is fun. Let's close the door on a brand new episode of Big Apple Buckets with the New York Post. Thanks to my man Jake Brown for producing this and making this happen each and every week. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please, indulge me. Give me a follow. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Kazim, K-A-Z-E-E-M. You can find more Knicks news by signing up to our daily NY Post sports newsletter and by visiting nypost.com. Happy New Year, folks. I think this is the last day we can actually wish people Happy New Year before it gets weird. But we'll see you next Tuesday. Peace out.